You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Ready to step in? Stepping into all kinds of messy today because that's the name of our series. It's called Messy. And the, the idea of this series is that loving others isn't easy. We're just naming the fact that relationships are hard, right? We're, we're, we're naming the fact that, that conversation in conflicting situations is very hard. And today all I'm going to do is kind of just set the table a little bit. It's not going to be overly practical, but it'll have some ideas about some of these things. Um, in the coming weeks, we'll get probably more practical and introduce some tools and ideas. Um, and again, these are just, you know, one set of ideas about conflict. There's all kinds of great resources out there. But we, we want to ask the question, like, what does Jesus show us about conflict? And what do some modern approaches to wrestling with conflict have to do um, as far as, like, supplementing what we see in Jesus? There's some really great um, wisdom that has come about in recent years. And before we get too far, though, I wanted to talk about something that makes me uncomfortable in the midst of relationships and being together and trying to, like, kind of be in, you know. And it's this idea of people who are close talkers. Anyone? (laughs) Anyone heard of these? Now, close talkers are fine. Now, in an argument... Close talkers remind me of the episode of Friends where Joey is in like a Civil War movie or something and the guy's acting in his face and he's just spitting and it's like intense and that's how he enunciates, right? Like, and it's just like spraying all over his face and he's like, what's going on? Not only is he a close talker, but he's a close spitter and kind of angry as he does so because of the scene they're in, right? But close talker and I you know what like I'm not trying to make fun of people that maybe they just like intimate space but but it's also a cue to us like hey um, as much as we may like close space like that maybe maybe if other people don't like it part of conflict resolution is simply just giving people space right so so let's have some fun with this for a minute because I think we all kind of understand some of these social dynamics urban dictionary this is what they call a close talker one who leaves little space in face-to-face chatter that's easy right um, but Seinfeld has a great episode on this. How many of you remember this episode of Seinfeld? Anyone? Well, we're going to get to remember it because it's on the screen. Let's look at this. Check this out. Elaine, you don't have a problem with her, do you? Well, you adore Elaine. She wants to say hi. She's with her new boyfriend. What's he like? He's nice. Bit of a close talker. A what? You'll see. This is Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Hello, Aaron. So how long are you folks in town? (laughs) Three more days. Three more days, and then we're off to Paris. Ah, We're going with the select charter group. I love France. I was just there last year. In fact, (laughs) you know, I still have an envelope full of French francs. I'll give them to you. We can't take money. Oh, no. It's a gift from us. Oh, that is so nice, Aaron. <laughs> Isn't he nice? <laughs> so listen, has Jerry been showing you a good time? No, I haven't. <laughs> you know, I, I have a friend who works at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. How'd you like a behind-the-scenes tour? Really? You could do that? Easily. It wouldn't be any trouble? Of course not. When's the How about right now? I'm ready. Are you 
you sure? Yes. Okay, let me get my coat. Elaine, what do you say? Well, well I don't think so, Aaron. Uh, uh, I have plans. Oh. How about you, Jerry? <laughs> I'm sorry. You sure? You examine the artwork up close. Maybe I'll try and catch up with you. Be Kramer. I've heard about you. <laughs> hey, you must be Aaron. I've heard about you. <laughs> we'll see you later. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Oh, it makes me happy every time. You see, there, there's, there's these just cultural assumptions we bring to conversation, right? And this is a silly example, but there's other assumptions that maybe are hidden and aren't necessarily just cultural, right? There's, there's assumptions each of us bring to conversation, messy relationships, messy conflict, that maybe we need to be awakened to a little bit because some of our assumptions aren't necessarily fair assumptions sometimes, right? And we all know what assuming does, but there's children in the room. So, so I, I want us to, to just sort of step into this um, conversation, right? Close talkers are one kind of interesting case study. But at the end of the day, I want to just emphasize how we, we think about relationships as messy. Um, and you don't have to go far. If, if you have a parent who is active in your life, relationships are messy. And I don't even have to qualify it. And some of you sort of laughing, right? Like, like it's messy. If you have a, a significant other, relationships are messy. If you have children, relationships are messy and there's poo involved, right? If you have like actual like siblings that you know, relationships are messy. If you have friends of any sort, if they're your real friend, they're probably a little bit, there's some mess that gets involved. Have you ever had a roommate that was your friend and you realize, whoa, being friends and roommates isn't the best idea for us. I, I, you know, one of you is like, we do the dishes every day. We go to bed with a clean sink. One of you is like me, what's a clean sink? Why does that matter? I have a plate that I can use. I'll just rinse this one off, right? Like, and this, this drives people bonkers. And they realize, wow, we're not good roommates, but we're great friends, right? So, so even at that level, people you work with, oh, yeah, that, that gets really messy really fast because you have zero uh, common interests, at least at the foundation, right, besides this environment that you've been put in, right? Eventually, you know, by God's grace, like more and more sort of interest bubbles up and you have more than just we work together. But, but at the end of the day, you're bringing in a bunch of different worlds that have come together around a job and you have to figure out how do we work together? Like, how does this work? We, we, we have very little in common and so we're bringing stuff sometimes. Or you may have lots in common and still bring other kinds of stuff, right? And, and so... Um, it goes deeper, though, of course. Social media, friends, yeah, lots of those. Yes, yes. And that's okay, right? But we've even redefined what friend is so that when we're in social media land, we, we, we really argue. You know what I mean? We, we argue, argue with all caps, and it's irrational and doesn't help anybody sometimes. You know what I mean? So, so social media brings up another level of conflict. Acquaintances, really. And, and so as we think about that, you know, I came across this image that are these images, really, of 
thinking about conflict and sort of just trying to get into our own like space a little bit and ask, okay, so what kind of conflict person am I? Now, there's a lot of different things you could talk about, right? We could talk about the Enneagram and your dynamic and all of that. I think those are great tools. Um, this is just a little easier to talk about in five minutes. And so um, go do a seminar on the Enneagram, read a few books, and process it for three months. And then we'll have that conversation, right? But, but here, here's some animals that remind us of our conflict style, right? So the turtle, yes. And it's not a ninja turtle. It's a very chill turtle in a nice, peaceful pond somewhere. And this turtle is the turtles, uh, they hide from conflicts by withdrawing into their shells. They feel helpless and believe that trying to resolve the conflict is hopeless. Yeah. So, so using this as a metaphor, right? Some of us, when we come to conflict, are kind of like turtles and we just uh, inching out of our shell is very risky, very vulnerable. And, and to engage just seems like, why? why? It's just going to make people sad. It's just going to hurt. Yeah. I, I resonate with this sometimes. Sometimes I feel like this. Like, I don't want to have these conversations. Like, this, this is scary. You know, the, the next animal is maybe the polar opposite in characteristic, the shark, right? A shark overpowers opponents and forces them to accept his or her uh, solution. Sharks place more importance on goals than relationships. Uh, they win by attacking, overwhelming, and intimidating. Now, this isn't a judgment, Right? Because just like the turtle is passive and wants to avoid conflict, well, the shark wants to go all in on it, right? And there's, they're, both, they're both like things, right? <laughs> it's hard to judge either approach because they're both maybe less than adequate when it comes down to it. But they both definitely reveal something about ourselves, right? The next one is uh, my favorite, the teddy bear. Yeah, teddy bears place importance on relationships and little on goals. And uh, I know that picture's great, right? They believe people can't discuss conflicts without damaging relationship, so they should be avoided to maintain harmony. Uh, th this is like, you know, where, where the turtle is like, I just don't want to know the conflict is there. This is like, I just love everyone. I can't. I just can't. Can we just be cool? hey, you know that one thing we're arguing about? It's cool, right? Yeah, it's cool. You know, that, that's the teddy bear approach. But it's interesting, if you talk to anyone who has the teddy bear approach, what they learn in growth probably is that this teddy bear approach over time actually leads to deeper challenges, like resentment. Like when you're a teddy bear, it can easily lead to, hey, for the sake of harmony, I haven't been heard. Yeah. And by the way, some people, like, like, it's not like you just grow up one day and you're like, okay, I, my approach to this is teddy bear or shark. or Like, you, you, you have personality things that are probably embedded in your DNA that have contributed to that, and you have context things. You have all the intersections of your life that are piling on you, right? And so your response is sometimes a response of resilience, right? In, in the sense that you're, you're, the way you deal with conflict is actually the outcome of circumstance and how you're going to survive emotionally in those circumstances. So, so again, you don't need to judge yourself if you're identifying with any of these animals. Um, it's just what it is. And wisdom says that you discern what it is and you say, huh, now that I'm observing these patterns in myself, what does it look like to say, hey, I can still be a teddy bear in some kind ways, 
but I can also bring a little shark into the picture. I can bring a little, you know, and, and really start to wrestle with what it would look like to grow through your primary posture in a conflict, right? And so this is the third image, and this is the image I'm going to talk about more today, the wise owl. Oh, I love owls. You know, I saw an owl. Um, by the way, I, I didn't grow up, like, getting to see owls very often. I know some parts of the country, you see them easily. Um, in central California, we have them, but you never see them. They're hidden. I saw one, I think, on a pole one time, and I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it was, like, once in how long did I live in California? 29 years, right? So, so it was a lot, a lot of wishing I could see owls. I saw one, however, um, at a monastery in Cottonwood, Idaho, not um, a week ago. I was actually out there doing a residency. I'm in this uh, spiritual direction training program. But the previous residency, six months prior, I walk out, and there's a small tree, and this little tiny owl just chilling in the tree. Like, and I, I, I kid you not, I was like four feet and I'm just checking it out, taking little pictures, and uh, it was almost as cool as holding a monkey that one time. I mean, this was, this was a big deal. This was a big deal, I'm just going to say. And so, so I, my life has become more full because of this one owl I've encountered. And, um, but owls, traditionally, if you know anything about the Winnie the Pooh narrative, are wise, right? They're wise. And this is what owls um, bring to conflict, Owls value both goals and relationships. Notice that. Relationships matter, like the teddy bear, but goals matter, like the shark-tempered, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, like there's, there's characteristics, and um, they see conflicts as problems to be solved and look for solutions that achieve the other person's goals as well as their own. Owls open discussions that identify conflicts as problems and seek mutually are mutually beneficial solutions that resolve tensions. So again, I don't know what your spirit animal was before today, but now you have four choices. So get on board, okay? You have four choices. Um, I'm going to suggest the owl is an image that helps us think about the way Jesus steps into conflict and invites his disciples to step into that same conflict, the wise owl. And so there's a great, great, it's great because of how it ends. A story in the New Testament that's really well known. We're going to look at it. It's in John chapter 8. And this is a story that Jesus actually kind of steps into a conflict that wasn't caused or created by him. Right? He has conflicts that are very much caused by him. He says something radical. People don't like that. Sometimes they try and push him off cliffs, and that one time they executed him, right? So, so Jesus does have his own sort of one-to-one -one conflict things going on, but this is actually a situation where Jesus steps into a conflict as sort of a, a mediator in a sense. Of course, we're going to draw out who he sides with. I mean, it's very clear, but, but he steps into this scenario. He's at the temple. He's in Jerusalem, and this is how the story goes in John 8. You'll see it on the screen, or you can listen along. It says this, Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him and sat down, um, and he sat down and, they, and taught them. The legal experts and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, 
Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? Stop right here for a minute. So, so by the way, this is one of those like highlight moments, right? We talked about this in our How to Read the Bible series a couple of weeks ago. Remember, this is one of those highlight moments where it's like, okay, so back in the day, there was this kind of approach to dealing with certain situations. And we're bringing that up, Jesus, because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And you're going to see Jesus renegotiate the terms of that old contract. Again, when we think about how to read the Bible, we're thinking, how does Jesus inform the lens through which we go backwards into the story, right, from the New Testament? And so here we have this woman who has been apparently caught in the act of adultery. And I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, like, how do you catch a woman in the act of adultery? Or a man, for that matter, who they don't want to bring up at all. Like, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, it takes a very determined mob um, who has stalked until the possible moment of said, what's the old-fashioned word, fornication, right? And, and like, has somehow, like, figured out, okay, do you think they're at, they're, yeah, yeah, I think it's right now. And they just dart in there, and they kidnap her in the act of, yeah, very fast. I mean, if you just play this out in real time, beyond what the story's already told us, it's disturbing on all kinds of levels. Now, it's disturbing, of course, because of the way a woman is being treated and singled out as a prop in their game. Now, you got to remember, in ancient, um, not in ancient, well, first century Jerusalem, there's movement to say, we have to purify ourselves, and that's why the Romans have taken over. And if we purify ourselves as a people, then Rome will get overthrown, and we will be the glorious Israel that we always dreamt of back in the David days, Right? And so, so they're just like in piety mode, and the way they do that doesn't matter if they kill because, you know, it's not like Jesus applies to them, right? Like, it's not like they have a teaching called love your enemies. That's a New Testament thing, and they're, they're not in that zone. And so, so they're just like, we've got to figure this out, and we get to throw rocks at somebody, and we're going to purify Israel, and maybe if that Jesus guy shows up, we can kind of trap him. Now, if you're a first century Jewish person, you have another story in your mind when these kind of scenarios come up, especially as Jesus becomes this sort of um, focal point of trap. In First Kings chapter 3, there's a king named Solomon, and he's, he's in his chamber, and these two women are brought to him because they are claiming that this child belongs to them. What am I saying? Two women claiming the same child as their own. Very interesting, right? And so Solomon's like in this weird situation where his wisdom is being tested. And he has to figure out in that moment, what am I going to do to expose the truth here? And so he does something that's a little twisted, you know. He says, okay, so here's my solution. I'm going to cut the child into halves, and you each can have half of this baby course it's not really what he wants to do right and in that moment the sincerity of the authentic mother rises to the surface and he finds hey of course this is your child right and the proper mother gets the child see it's these sort of like what feel like no win scenarios 
that here Solomon, as weird as it might feel to us, comes up with a third option, a third way to handle this and discern this, kind of some wisdom here. Um, and, and Jesus is caught in a similar situation. Like, it feels like a no-win, and we're going we're gonna to see why, because they're trying to basically say, look, Jesus, we know you've got this soft heart. We know you're this softy, but dude, first of all, we don't like what you're saying. And second of all, um, yeah, you know what's right. We have to throw rocks at her. Pretty crazy, right? So if we keep going, verse 6 says this, they said this to test him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. So, so here, Jesus flexes some Solomon wisdom muscle, right? He's sounding like a wise owl. He says, look, if any of you have no sin, then you are qualified to throw these rocks. Clearly, they wouldn't claim that of themselves because then they would be committing blasphemy, right? And so, so basically, we have Jesus in this moment, and he's, you know, it's very fascinating. He gets down on the ground, and he starts drawing in the dirt. And there's all kinds of discussion about this. It's very interesting stuff. But whatever he's doing, whatever he might have been writing, what we do know is that he's exposing something here. He's exposing that these guys have the wrong agenda in mind. In fact, what's interesting is there's some who believe, and this is, I can't confirm this, so we'll just play with this though. There are some who have argued that when Jesus gets down, it's very likely that he is writing down names of people he knows in the mob, associating them with biblical sins, <laughs> writing that in the dirt. No, no, because there's a few places where we have these nudges that maybe one of the priestly roles in these situations was to, in fact, write down in the dirt, like, what this person's being tried for before throwing the rocks. And so some people have suggested, what if Jesus is actually writing down their sins? There's a passage in, uh, I can't remember, I thought I had it written down, I, I must have, uh, deleted it for sake of time, but I'm telling you it from memory, which makes it longer. Um, <laughs> but there's this, this um, there is a passage that kind of alludes to this, that God writes the, um, the sins and the dust. Like there's some of these like hints we get. So, so whether or not that's what's happening, whatever he's writing is implicating them somehow so that when he says the words he does, he's like, oh, we're exposed. What are we going to do here? And so just like Solomon, he, re he reverses the trap. And so Jesus in this moment humanizes the woman. Now, he, he's going to keep talking. And in the last little bit of the story, uh, verse 9 through 11, this is what it says. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, no one, sir. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. And in this moment, 
Jesus has just empowered her to step into a life that's better than she's known so far. You hear that? Because, because this is not how men and women in this situation interact in the first century. This is Jesus stepping in and saying, look, go have a life without all of this baggage. Right? We can read that and be like, oh, Jesus is so harsh. But, but like, don't you want to live a life of no more like baggage? Like, don't you want to live a life that, as Joel Osteen says, who I would never quote, is your best life now? You know? <laughs> like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, if, if it, I mean, the book cover looks really nice. He has a nice smile. I'm thinking to myself, I, I want my best life now, Jesus. And so, so it, you know, I'm being sarcastic. Um, Joel's a great dude, I'm sure. My point is this, that, that Jesus isn't just saying, hey, you know what? You are pretty wrong. He's saying, look, what kind of life do you want for yourself? Go step into the life God wants for you, a life of shalom, of wholeness, of empowerment. Be released from this pattern you've been in. Be released to be who you can be. This is revolutionary teaching in the first century. No Roman philosopher would ever do this. No Greco person would ever do this. Nobody but Jesus would do this. And this is part of why the message of Jesus is countercultural in the 21st century today as well. And so, as we think about this story, and, and now step back a little bit from the, the angle of just framing a conversation on conflict, what are some things that we can think about as we step into this with Jesus? As we talk about conflict through the lens of Jesus, as we talk about relationships through the messy lens of Jesus? Well, here's a few things that I came up with, and there's probably more. But here's a few things. Jesus' wisdom in conflict. One of the things that I think Jesus does well is he understands both perspectives. And you see in brackets, hopefully up there, this doesn't mean validate both. So, so I want to make sure we understand something here, right? So, so in conflict, you don't have to always validate the side you disagree with in the sense of your opinion is good. It might be toxic, violent, terrible. In this situation, we had a situation that was vo- you know, volatile to life. But if Jesus didn't understand where these religious dudes with the rocks in their hands, where they were coming from, how would he even diffuse the conflict? Right? He knew their language. He knew what they needed to hear. What did they need to hear? Hey, according to Torah, you're not perfect either. Right? That Jesus couldn't have done that if he didn't know their narrative. So understanding the side that you're in opposition to strategically can be used to your advantage, but also can maybe jolt a hair of empathy in it as well. Because we can start asking questions like, what's under the thing that's driving this thing? Right? We start to ask the question, like, why do they want to kill a woman? Like, is that really their goal? Like, hey, today we just woke up and thought, you know, doing these violent acts would just be really great for our ego. Like, you don't just wake up one day and that, that's your goal. Like, you get there somehow. And I think Jesus probably knew, like, man, they, they're really longing for the liberation of Israel, and that's not all bad, right? But their means to get in there, that is all bad. And over and over again, he's going to expose those means as hypocritical. He'll use that word over and over in the Gospels as... Um, that what will lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. He'll talk about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Like, like 
this for Jesus, understanding without necessarily validating in the sense of, yeah, your idea is a good one, helps create the space to actually have these conversations. He also probably understood what it was like to be a woman in the first century. He probably thought of his friend Mary Magdalene. He probably thought of other women that were supporting his ministry financially and knowing what kind of lot they had been handed. And in all of that, he says, there's, in, there's an inequity here. There's something off here. And we see that over and over again in Jesus' ministry, from women being disciples at his feet to Jesus saying things like, look, if you're going to if you're going to walk away from a marriage, give her a dang certificate of divorce and demonstrate that she actually is worth like actually acknowledging a separation rather than just saying, go, go to the streets, go do your thing, right? Like Jesus, the first century world is horrible. Like, do you, do you understand this? Like, when people read the Bible and they say, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. And they don't put it in the first century world. Here's what happens you lose the actual intensity of what Jesus does. When Jesus heals people in the first century, he is liberating them from the the horrible situation they are already in as being marginalized, outcasts, and all of this. And Jesus says, look, here's one thing I can do in this moment. I can give you these things, right? Or when Jesus feeds people, he's not just feeding people because they're hungry that day because they've been walking too long. He's feeding people that probably don't have a whole lot of food. You you know? When Jesus says, love your enemies, he knows the cost. That it's going to hurt. That Roman oppressors are actually oppressors. Like, Like, the first century, like, if we don't understand how intense the New Testament is in these matters, it's because we haven't put the New Testament back in its world. And so Jesus understands that gravity associated with the suffering of women. And he wants to step in and say, this this ends here. My followers have a different way. And so in conflict, his wisdom is just like, look, I see both storylines. I don't validate the goals of both storylines necessarily. There's some things in the storyline I lean towards that need to be exposed. It's not the best, right? Leave your sin. Start living differently. But at the end of it, can we come somewhere that has seen both perspectives and move forward in something that's actually humanizing, helpful, hopeful, etc. Which leads me to the second big thing is that um, Jesus' wisdom and conflict exposes dehumanizing behavior. Um, This is really important for all of us because we get into dehumanizing mode pretty quickly, even with people we love. Doesn't matter what the dynamic is. If you're, you know, kind of like the lower person or higher person in the dynamic, maybe it's a parent or something. That's an easy example to draw out here. And 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 you're like, we disagree. And you're talking about Trump 2020, right? Because that's going to happen. Good luck. And 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 you're you're having this conversation. And then all of a sudden, it's like, I'm going to project that if you like this thing I don't like, you are this label that label, this other label, right? And, and they're doing it to you, right? And it's like, you're this kind of person. Bible, you don't really read it. You know, all of these things. And, and all that does 
is say that the person in front of me who doesn't agree with me is less than human than me because they would be more human if they actually knew what I knew, and they don't know what I know, so they're obviously dumb, right? It is so much more complex than that. But is there a pathway to expose those dehumanizing tendencies when they arise? One of the things that frustrates me to no end is that Bibles often label this story the adulterous woman or the woman caught in adultery. This story is the men caught with stones in their fists. That is what this story is. That, if, if we miss the script, we, we play into the thing Jesus was subverting. And so the humanizing behavior, wherever it is in conflict, whether we are unacknowledged like perpetrators of it or are receiving it, it's got to be exposed. It's got to be let known. And it goes another way because once we can do that, when we can see both perspectives, we can expose these dehumanizing tendencies, then we might be able to start seeing third options. That's something we talk about in our tradition a lot, right, as Anabaptists, right? We, we talk about, like, is there a third way through this? Is there another option besides this or that, black or white, you know, like, like these polarities that have been imposed on us by the culture around us and our experiences? Are there other options? Now, now, here's what happens sometimes that I don't think are really third ways. It's like, oh yeah, we're just going to be cool with it. You know, like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about radical solutions that bring justice, healing, mercy, humanizing tendencies all to the forefront, right? So Jesus here is like, I can't say it's all good, right, with this woman. It's not all good. Like, look at her life. It's clearly not all good. And yet at the same time, he can't say, kill her. What do we burn apart from witches? More witches. I don't, you know, like, like two of you understand that movie. Um, and and, and like, like, Jesus is like, those don't work for me. So what do I do? Well, he points them towards something that he saw coming. Exposing the ill through this third path. Saying, look, yeah, I acknowledge that certain patterns of sexuality in this scenario aren't the ideal, according to Moses, right? But I also acknowledge that throwing rocks at people, well, Moses was wrong, or at least he's wrong now, yeah? And so Jesus steps in and says, there's got to be a better option here. And interestingly, the resolution to the conflict has Jesus' wisdom primarily infused into it, but it's not just Jesus who's the only actor. Jesus didn't legislate to them, walk away. He exposed the conflict for what it really was, and that third option just was the clearest pathway forward. Oh, I guess we have to walk away now. Yeah, we kind of do, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and it's over. And Jesus names the woman as, you, you can move forward. You can have a different kind of life. You know, when I was thinking about this, because it, it's really hard, right? Like, we can, we can talk all day about noticing the perspectives in the room or in the situation. We can notice all day about, you know, humanizing people, right? We can notice all those things that Jesus does, and we can even say, oh, yeah, I can start to see a new vision emerging here. But something I struggle with in arguments and conflict is winning and not winning. Anybody? Here's the deal. We have to choose love, not winning. That, that, 
That, my friends, might be one of the hardest things about pulling this off. And I'm going to tell you a story about this because I think, I think what we see in Jesus is that love didn't, love was the motivation. He didn't care about winning an argument here. He cared about love. And so often when we're fighting, we start with our motivation is pure. Our motivation is love. We care about people, so we're going to defend these people. You know, we, whatever. Ten minutes into that conversation, you're not focused on love anymore. What are you focused on? <laughs> I know how I'm going to, like, you know, sly around this and give him my best argument over here. I'm going to, like, ask him a series of questions. And once those questions get asked, I'm going to hit them with my punch, right? My, not, not necessarily fists, although if you do that, I'm, another series we've done called Peacemaking in the Way of Jesus. But, like, like, like you know, I, I have this intellectual idea over here that I'm setting them up. I'm setting the trap. It doesn't sound like Jesus, by the way. It's not really a good trap, right? Jesus was in a trap, and he said, let me expose the dumbness of your trap. Throw some rocks. Go for it. You know, and, and, and then, boom, I'm going to hit him with my best shot. Well, here's the deal. It, it doesn't look like Jesus at that point. If your goal is winning, you've already lost. And this is a challenge I have. So when I deal with conflict historically, um, I have been someone who cognitively knows I need to have conflict and get riled up about it, but physically I get all, ah, they can't do it. Anyone have that? Like that distance between the way your body tells you to deal with conflict and then your, your like actual cognitive awareness of the need for it? Like I knew many times in my life that I needed to step into a conflict, but I had trauma and things in my life that said conflict is unsafe, I can't do this, I can't do this, and so I just shake and I get all weird. And then so now even that comes up sometimes, and you know what I have to do? I have to like name it in the room. I actually have to say, like, hey, I'm going to be a little shaky because I have these things that happen in these scenarios, but I want you to know that it's not reflective of how I feel about you or this situation, right? Like, I actually have to say that sometimes. It's, it's not something I do all the time, but when I notice it, I mean, what are you going to think if someone's quivering and you're not, like, <laughs> like naming the dynamic? You're just going to think, oh, they're, they're afraid or they know they're wrong or whatever, right? Well, no, there's so many complexities. Well, one of the ways that I got exposed to my challenging situations where love lost and winning became the goal. This is kind of early on in my marriage. Um, I asked Lauren if I could, ask, if I could share this. Um, it's probably about two or three years before, two years probably before we moved to Seattle. And we'd been married about, I don't know, three or four years at that point. Maybe five, I don't know. It keeps getting longer. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's like, wait, I've been married like almost 13 years, okay weird. Okay, so, so like, like it was before we were here, because I remember where it happened. I remember our living room. I remember the conversation. Here, here's the deal. When I overcompensate for those things, that dynamic I just told you about, I go into defensive mode, and I just go for it. And you know, I've, I've been given this gift, and the gift is I have words that I can say that can convince you that I'm right. Very dangerous for a preacher. Let me be real. Like, you should always ask yourself, is Kurt trying to convince us of something weird? I, I would, I, seriously, it's okay to ask yourself that. Hopefully you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty genuine. I try to be, and I'm going to embarrass myself, so here you go. Um, and so I, in those modes, in the past, um, Lauren and I could be having an argument, and I could be convinced that I had the right opinion. And eventually, my reasoning and words would take over the conversation. And what I was trying to do was expose how dumb 
air quote, her logic was against mine. How she wasn't seeing what she should see. That, that's where I used to go. I mean, it was my defense because I was scared, right? Conflict is terrifying. And so what do I do well to guard myself? Well, I'm just going to give you some good words here. Look, obviously you don't understand A, B, or C because if you understood A, B, or C, then D would be obvious and D is what I want because that what it mean, that's what it means to win, right? Well, I was reading, I, I was preparing, and I can't remember which book it was, but there's a spiritual writer named Dallas Willard and, and he had this small little section where he, he compared snakes and doves as metaphors. So here's some more animal images. And, and one of the things he said was doves, positively, are without guile. Now, guile, I didn't know what that word meant, so I looked it up. But guile, to me, was a character on Street Fighter II, if you grew up playing that game. So I didn't know, like, what guile meant. And um, I looked it up, and I found out, <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm a weird person. And, and like, so I looked it up, um, and, and it was like, oh, Someone who uses words persuasively towards an end, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, interesting. And he, and he said, he, he has this phrase in one of his books. He says, doves are guileless. Like, like, and the New Testament wants us to be guileless or something like that, or guilelessness. It's a word he made up, I'm sure. And, and I read that and I thought, whoa, are there ever times when I'm just like overusing my rhetoric to power over conflict? And I held that and went to a retreat because this was a book preparing for a retreat. And I came back, and um, I don't know how long it was after that retreat and that reading, but it was, you know, not super long, but maybe a month or a few weeks. And Lauren and I are in that mode, and we're arguing, and I'm doing my thing. I'm just like, okay, love left the room like five minutes ago, and now it's about winning. And so I'm going to win, and here's how I'm going to win. I'm going to tell you how good I am at everything I do, right? Then this moment happened where mid-sentence, and this doesn't happen very often in my life, mid-sentence, it's going to sound weird for some of you, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me one word. It was the word guile. Mid-conversation, I began to feel things. I had to ask Lauren, hey, can we pause for a second? Something happened, and I started weeping. And, like, literally had to stop all of it mid-sentence. And I, I crying in front of her, which she's like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> like, what just happened? And I said, this is going to sound weird. I need to ask for your forgiveness. I'm so sorry. Can I tell you about the word guile for a moment? And I wept, and she held me. And I'd like to say that I never had this problem again, but that's not true. <laughs> but I did confirm last night that I've gotten a heck of a lot better. I filtered because of the children. <laughs> 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 that I have grown in this area. You know, that God can free us from these natural tendencies. And so I just want to invite us as we step into a series about conflict that love can be the ultimate goal. That humanizing the other can be the ultimate goal. That winning is never actually a win in the end. That love is always what wins, what is good.